0: Man, thank y'all so much. So how are you today? How's the temperature in here? Is it too hot? Is it too cold? What do y'all, what do y'all want for lunch today? Do you need do you need anything from the store? What time are you going to be home? What, what makes you feel like you're qualified for this position? Will you go to the prom with me? Our lives are an almost endless barrage of questions, aren't they? We ask and we are asked about any number of things throughout the day, trying to just figure out what's going on, just trying to keep up. On average, you probably ask about 100 questions a day. If you are blessed to have a four-year-old living in your house, you are asked on average about 400 questions a day. I found out this week that people ask Google 40,000 questions a second, which means that throughout the course of the day, there are more Google searches happening in our world than there are people in our world. And I know that because I Googled it. Most of the questions that we ask or are asked, most of them are really pretty benign. They're not really that monumental. Alexa, what's the weather today? But there are some questions that we all have to have answers to that are so big and so important that they will form almost every single thing about us. How could you know there is a God? What is truth? Don't all religions basically teach the same thing? How can you possibly believe believe that a good God would send people to hell? Those are big questions. I want to spend some time on Sunday mornings over the next few weeks leading up to Easter trying to help you answer some of those big questions. And so if you have people in your family or people in your friends that maybe have asked, people in your friend group that maybe have asked you those kind of questions before, it would be a great time for you to bring them to church leading up to Easter Sunday, where I'm going to ask what is, for me, the most important question of all. And that is, why am I a Christian? I can't answer that for you. I can't answer it for anybody else. But on Easter Sunday, I'm going to tell you why I am a Christian. But leading up to that, I want to answer some of the big questions that we all need answers for. And what I've found is that during the last hours of Jesus' life, As he's preparing to go to the cross, as he's facing trial, he keeps bumping into these questions over and over again. The biggest questions that we all need answers to, they're all right here in the last hours of Jesus's life. So here's a question for you before we jump in today. Why do this? Why do this? Why take time in Sunday morning worship service to ask and try and listen to, and then answer these big questions. Well, I've got two reasons. The first reason is because some of y'all have big questions. You've got real questions about the Bible, or about God, or about Jesus. Maybe you are comfortable in church. Maybe you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but you still have questions. And you would still very much like to have answers to those questions that you have. In fact, sometimes, the truth of the matter is... That church doesn't always seem like a good place to have questions, does it? Seems like we have to come here and we have to be confident. And we have to have answers. And we have to know. And it seems like so often that Christianity is presented as one series of exclamation points after another, as indeed it should be. But there's never any place for questions. See, what happens is, put this in your mind if maybe this will help, help you think through it. What happens is is that some people... On the inside, they're like a starving person. Just imagine that they've been on a desert island for whatever reason, Gilligan's Island or whatever. They've been on this desert island for weeks and weeks without no food and hardly any clean water. They've been just just eating coconuts to get by, and they're starving. And somehow you're able to rescue this starving person, and the first place you take them is to Golden Corral. Y'all, Golden Corral is proof that God is an American and God is good. No, not really. God is not an American, but he is good, so he invented Golden Corral for us. But you take this starving person off of this desert island, and they walk into Golden Corral, and all those smells hit them, and their stomach just starts to churn, and their mouth starts to water, and they are ready to go dive in after not having eaten for so long. But then you tell them. You say, now, the only thing you can do is eat at the Chocolate Wonderfall. Now, the Chocolate Wonderfall is great, but you need a little bit more than that, right? Sometimes what happens in church is that people come into this place and they're starving spiritually. And we say to them, here is some empty calories for you. Here's a little sweet sacred inspiration that may keep you alive, but it's not really going to help you grow. So that's the first reason. Because I want to give you some substance. But the second reason is this. All of us as God's people today, whether we feel like we have the answers or not, as God's people today, we are tasked with sharing the gospel to our world. And the Bible says to us in 1 Peter chapter number 3 and verse 15 that we should be ready to give answer to those who ask of us of the hope that we have inside of us. We should be ready to give the answers. But a lot of us don't share the gospel regularly because we're afraid that somebody's going to trip us up with some question that we can't answer. And so I want to help you, I hope, over the next few weeks, give you some answers that you can take from this place to those that have questions. Because church, listen to me today. You are blessed to live in one of the most uncertain, difficult, complicated times in American history. Congratulations. And we look at our culture and we know things have changed. Many of us maybe haven't picked up on it until the last few years. But we know things are changed. But we don't know what's changed We don't know when it's changed, and we don't know why it's changed. But I I would just submit to you today, I think I'm right about this, I would submit to you today that the great shifts that have happened in our world are not recent, but they have been decades and generations in the making, and that the great shift that has happened is not primarily a political shift. Now hear me, our culture has become more politically progressive. Whether you like that or whether you hate it, that's just the reality. It has become more politically progressive. But that is not the shift that has occurred. The shift that has occurred is not generational. In many ways, America is trending younger. But the issues in our nation are not about a generational gap. The issue is not even technological. Whether you are aware of it or not, you have lived through a technological revolution that is every bit as significant as the invention of the printing press. With the development of the internet and the advent of social media, the world has changed. But the change in our world is not primarily technological. The change that has occurred in our world is that now we are living in a post-Christian society. Now, that is not to say that there was some golden age of American history where everybody in America was a true, genuine Christian. That's never been the case. But it is to say that there was a time when most people answered the biggest questions of life primarily from a Christianized way of thinking. They had a certain way of thinking about God or morality, about life, maybe even eternity that came largely or mostly from a biblical way of looking at the world. But that is not the case anymore. You and I as God's people, we have got to learn how to share the gospel to a culture that is not what we may think we grew up with, that is not what we may want, but is starving for truth. And that's the first big question. The question underneath all of them what is truth? What is truth? Take your Bible today and turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter number 18. And we will begin reading in verse number 33. Well, verse number 28, really. John chapter 18 and verse number 28. To make sure that we get the the entirety of the picture. John chapter 18 and verse number 28. You'll be able to see, reading this text, that these events come to us. The last hours of Jesus' life. And his trial before a man named Pontius Pilate you don't know much about Pontius Pilate, that's okay. I'll catch you up in just a minute. The Bible says in verse 28, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside of them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, We would not have delivered him over to you. That's impeccable logic. He wouldn't have been arrested if he wasn't doing wrong. That's how justice works, right? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Jesus has been arrested. In a moment of prayer in a place called Gethsemane, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his disciples named Judas, who sold him into the hands of his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus has been turned over to a group within Judaism by the name of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were connected and and really ran the temple system of worship that was dominant in Jerusalem during the life of Jesus. The Sadducees were wealthy. The Sadducees were connected to the Roman authorities that were occupying Jerusalem at that time. They were deeply tied to the Roman government. The problem that the Sadducees had was Jesus. Jesus. They viewed his preaching and his teaching as a threat to their lifestyle, a threat to their power, and a threat to their money. And so they said, Jesus has to go. There is not room in this world for us and for him. But another problem the Sadducees have after Jesus is arrested, and they say it here in John chapter 18, is that they do not have the civil and criminal authority to go about executing anybody on their own. They have to turn Jesus over to the Roman occupying government so that Jesus can be crucified, which is what they are after. Their aim is the public humiliating execution and lynching of Jesus of Nazareth. But they can't do that themselves. They need the permission of the man we've been read about here, Pontius Pilate, who is the Roman governor of Judea. Now, understand this about Pilate. Pilate's appointment as the governor over Judea This was not a good job. He has been taken as a bureaucrat, and he has been shipped off to this far-flung corner of the Roman Empire that nobody wants to be in. The Jews were often ungovernable. They were always trying to revolt and overthrow Rome. This was just a difficult backwater place to manage the people were are hard to get along with. Pilate does not want to be here, but Pilate does know how the game is played. And Pilate knows that if he can do a decent job, if he can just keep everybody in line, then eventually the word will come that he will be promoted. And he can climb the ladder, and he can improve his standing in the Roman system of government. So Pilate doesn't care about this. Do you think Pilate really cares about this theological disagreement between the Sadducees and Jesus? No. You see throughout this passage how Pilate is he's trying to get out of this. He's trying to say, look, this is y'all's problem. Y'all deal with it. Leave me out of it. I don't care. I don't want to be here. But as he investigates Jesus and Jesus' claims, he has to get to the bottom of one central issue, which keeps popping up in the trial of Jesus, and that is the issue of authority. Pilate does not care if Jesus thinks he is a Messiah or if the Sadducees hate him. He doesn't care who the Jews worship or how they worship. What he cares about is, is there any kind of actual threat to Rome's political power in Judea? And is Jesus going to lead some kind of uprising? Does he see himself as some sort of hero who's going to overthrow Rome? What is he after? What is Jesus after? And so they get into this conversation about Jesus' political ambitions or his kingdom goals. And finally, Pilate just asks him, in probably a moment of frustration and aggravation, he just says, what is truth? What is truth? That's Pilate's problem. It's the problem of inaccessible truth. Let's start there today. Let's talk about the problem of inaccessible truth. Do you think it's unusual that Pilate, in the middle of essentially a criminal case, Pilate does not ask, what is true?" He asks, what is truth? He's not just trying to get to the facts. He's not just looking at fingerprints and crime scene evidence. What is truth? He's getting down to the very issues of reality itself. Is there such a thing as truths that are true for all people all the time no matter what? Are there rights that are always right? Are there wrongs that are always wrong? Is there any such thing as absolute, universal, unflexing, unyielding, unchanging truth? Or am I entitled to my own truth? Are you entitled to your own truth? Can you make your own truth? Do you have your truth and I can have my truth and my goal in life should be to find my truth and then to live my truth? That's the way a lot of people believe today. That truth is not absolute. That morality is not universal. But it is subjective. And it is changing. And people are allowed to, allowed to believe whatever it is that they might want to believe because what's right for me may be right for me right now, but it may not be right for you, but you can't tell me it's not right for me because that will definitely make you wrong. And that's why the pronouns that all of us have grown up using, he, her, he, him, she, her, them, they, that's why even the pronouns in common uses today, they must bow themselves down to the great moral revolution that we are living through. That's why even anatomy and biology cannot present itself as absolute fact. Coming back home from somewhere or another the other day, I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a car, probably a Prius, that said, you don't even know what it said. You don't even know why it's funny. It said Trump 2024. What did you think? No, it said the bumper sticker on the Prius, I think it's Prius, said question everything. Question everything. And that's what's happening in our culture today. There was a period in Western civilization where we believed that truth was externalized. It was outside of us. It needed to be discovered through investigation, through empirical evidence, through data, or through human reason. We looked outside of ourselves to find truth. Now we believe that truth has been largely internalized. We look into ourselves to find truth. And we find our truth when what we hope or believe to be true is verified by our experience or by our emotions. If we feel it to be true, then you do not have the right to tell me that it is not true. And I think that maybe I can prove this is happening to you by our changing relationship to the expert. People used to trust experts. I can, I can romanticize a time in my mind when my grandparents would sit down in front of the evening news and Walter Cronkite would come on and Walter Cronkite in his suit and his tie, he was an expert. He would tell you what had happened. When the president came on the television or on the radio and addressed the American people, he was the expert. When the doctor spoke, he was the expert. And people used to look at the world and think that the truth is out there. These experts are specialized enough to give me truth. And so I need to listen to when the expert speaks. But now how do we think about the expert? Now we doubt the expert unless the expert tells me what I wanted to hear anyway. And I can find any expert, any doctor, any politician... Any blogger living in a van down by a river somewhere, I can find any expert to tell me what I thought I already believed. And then I can bring out my expert to support my truth. That's how much we've shifted. That there is no truth out there, but it maybe is all in here. Here's our problem, though. The problem is this. We need truth. We have to have it. We can't live without it. If if you have to, just God forbid, but if you have to go to an oncologist to hear about cancer, you need an oncologist who knows the truth about healthy human cells and unhealthy cells. When you go to the mechanic, you need a mechanic who understands the, the basic truth of righty tighty, and lefty-loosey. He has to know it. Even the bumper sticker doesn't work. Question everything. Well, should I question the bumper sticker? Should I question the command to question everything, we have to have truth. And over the last few years in particular of American history, you have seen what happens when people are forced to live without truth. Because we, we don't know what truth is. We feel like we're disconnected from truth. We think everybody's trying to game us and everybody's trying to keep something from us and, 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 and pull the wool over our eyes. We don't know who to trust. Can we trust the government? Can we trust doctors? Can we trust institutions? Do we trust this medium personality or not? Who do we trust? Where is the truth? What is truth? Friends, the Bible would tell us today, we'll look about this, look about this in more in just a moment, that we have to have truth. We have to have truth. And that if truth is somehow flexible, pliable, if it's somehow not always fixed, then our world just is not going to work. If there is no absolute truth, you can't do science. You can't. Because the next time you look through the microscope, you might be seeing something different. If there is no absolute truth, if there is no absolute truth, how exactly do you try somebody for a war crime? If there is no absolute truth, then why do you get so stinking mad when you go to the Piggly Wiggly and you're in the express lane and that lady in front of you has that buggy that is heaped over? That's not 20 items or less. And you know surely she can count. And you know as well as I do that when you're standing there with your loaf of bread, that's all you've got, your loaf of bread you know that she's going to look at you. And then she's going to look at your loaf of bread. And then she's going to turn right around. And you get so aggravated. Why? Because the truth is that this land is for people with 20 items or less. And we need truth. And we can't live without truth. And we get outraged when truth is violated. We cannot live in a world where truth is always inaccessible. That's Pilate's problem of inaccessible truth. Let's talk about the problem of inconvenient truth. Pilate's problem in this passage of scripture is not that he doesn't know the truth. His problem is that he knows the truth and he doesn't like what he knows. Because he's so pressured by the winds of politics to climb the ladder of his own ambitions and advance himself in the Roman system of government that he knows he has to try and keep the peace, (coughs) excuse me, and keep everybody calm. And if the Sadducees get too out of frame about this Jesus stuff, well then what's he going to do? What about his career? What about his future? But he keeps saying over and over again to them and to himself, this man has done nothing wrong. He knew the truth. But he also knew that if he acted on what he knew to be true, it could ruin him. Pilate's problem is not that truth is inaccessible. Pilate's problem is that truth is inconvenient. And folks, I will tell you something today. The way the Bible presents our relationship to truth, is not, truth is not unlike Pilate's relationship to truth. The Bible never talks about unbelief as uh, as if unbelief is just a lack of information. The Bible always talks about unbelief as if unbelief is a moral deficiency. Unbelief never looks at the evidence and says there's not enough evidence. Unbelief looks at the evidence and says, I don't like where the evidence is taking me and I will not accept it. That's the kind of unbelief that Pilate is dealing with in his heart. I do not like the truth. And folks... Our difficulties with the truth, that is the condition under the human condition. Because when Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden, what were they really believing? Were they really believing, eat an apple, talk to a snake? No. What they were believing was that they had the right to become the people who define reality. Didn't the devil say to them, take and eat and you'll become like gods, knowing good and evil? They believed that they could define reality for themselves. And we still believe that we can define reality for ourselves. We still believe that we can take enough hormones and have enough surgery. And we can create our own reality. We still believe that we are the sovereign masters of our own fate. We are the unconquered captains of our own soul and that we can be and do anything that we want to do. And we desperately, we have this desperate need inside of us to reform, to recreate, to manipulate truth, to live the life that we want to live. And even people, even people in church that believe that the Bible is the Word of God do this. All the time. We do it all the time. Because we'll say things like, well... Hey, I know I shouldn't lose my temper the way I do. And I know what God says. But I'll tell you, if you'd have got as mad as I got, we feel like in the moment the truth is relative. The truth doesn't apply to me. And so that I can somehow justify living a lie because the truth is like Play-Doh. It can be molded. And this is our problem. What the Bible says to us today is this this is important you understand this the Bible says that that which informs us will form us and when we try to reform what informs us we will become deformed what forms us or what informs us forms us and when we try to reform what informs us we will become deformed Here's an example of how this works. You all know people that do this. Some of y'all might do this. You go to the doctor for your annual checkup, and the doctor looks at you and says, Okay, here's the truth. The truth is that you got high blood pressure, your triglycerides are out of control, your blood sugar is borderline diabetic, and your body looks like three week old lime jello, okay? This is the truth, and here's what you need to do to change it. You've got to stop eating so many carbs. You need to get on a treadmill. And what do you do? You leave and think, man, that doctor's quiet. Where do you go to medical school anyway? Where do you go to medical school? I mean, I'm going to find me a new doctor. He don't know what he's talking about. But if you reject truth and embrace that lie, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Somebody just said, I'm going to be preaching your funeral sermon. That's what's going to happen. Why? Because when we try to live away from truth and away from the truth of the word of God, we become utterly deformed and utterly destroyed. What is truth? What is truth? Pilate has another problem. His problem is not really that truth is inaccessible. His problem is that truth is inconvenient. But he's got a real problem here. I would submit to you, this is the problem really facing all of us today. And this is the problem of incarnate truth. The problem of incarnate truth. Pilate throws up his hands and says, what is truth? You can't know the truth. The truth is going to confuse you, distort you. You can't really know anything that's right. What's the right thing to do? But he asked that question in response to a conversation that he and Jesus had been having already. He asks Jesus, are you a king? Jesus says, if I were a king from this world, then my followers would fight to put me in power. My kingdom is not of this world. So you are a king? And he said, Jesus says to him, he says, this is the reason that I came. Verse number 37. I was born and I came for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus says, I came to be the testimony to the truth. Folks, Christianity does not claim that, that, that truth is undiscoverable. Christianity does not claim, of course, that truth is flexible. Christianity claims that yes, truth is outside of us. Yes, truth is not up for us to shape or for us up to us to deform. But what Christianity says to us is that in the coming of the Lord Jesus, we do not need to get to the truth. The truth has come to us. Jesus says in John chapter 14 and verse number 6, He says, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Folks, the claim of the Bible is that ultimate reality is a person. It is a person who was born in a manger. A person who walked on water. A person who healed the sick. A person who was crucified. A person who came up out of his grave and who reigns now with God on high. That man is truth. Now, here's the problem. Here is where all of the claims of moral relativism and where all of the presuppositions, where they collide with the claims of Jesus. Jesus is the one who derails every single claim of moral relativism. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the truth. Here's what you absolutely cannot do with that. You cannot look at that and say, well, that may be true for him. But is it true for us? You can't do that. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am truth. And if you look at him and you say, well, Jesus was wrong to say that he was the truth. Then what you've just admitted is that there are absolute truths. This claim derails every single belief that truth is relative. Every lie, we want to believe that the truth can be formed to our own liking, that it can fit our own convenience. Jesus says, no, I am truth. And Jesus says, I will not be deformed. I will not be reformed. But the truth in Christ is that he can transform. That's the truth in Christ. The Bible's claim to us is that Jesus is truth incarnate because he is God in flesh. And that he reveals to us a God who looks at us in our sin and says, you people need to be born again. That's the truth that Jesus bears witness to. Jesus bears witness to the truth that we inwardly suspected all along. That there is something wrong with us. And that the something wrong with us, Jesus says, is our relationship to God. But that he can fix that. Jesus bears witness to the truth that He can offer us a joy that will never fail by giving us Himself as a fountain of living water. Jesus comes to us and bears witness to the truth that He is the bread of heaven who will satisfy every single longing that we have. He comes and bears witness to the truth that He is the light of the world. Jesus bears witness to the truth that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He comes and he bears witness to the truth that he is a God who will get down in the dirt with sinful man and say to us at our worst, I will not condemn you in your sin, but I can give you a new life. Go and sin no more. He bears witness to the truth that sin is real, but it can be forgiven. Because when he is lifted up to die, he cries out and he says, Father, forgive them, my crucifiers, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he confirms the truth that you inwardly believe really is true, that there is something beyond death. Why is it that we go to funerals and we hope to see our loved ones again? Because we know the truth. And the truth is there's more coming beyond this grave. And Jesus came to bear witness to that truth. And He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus says, I am the eternal life that is to come beyond the grave for My people. Jesus bears witness to the truth that we already suspect. We already suspect that there's something wrong with us. We already suspect that somehow we're not good enough. We already suspect that we need to change. We already suspect that death is coming, but that there maybe there's something beyond it. Jesus bears witness to the truth. We already expect it to be true. And that means two things for us today that are significant and important. The first one is this that the central claim of Christianity, the central truth claim of Christianity, revolves around a person. The central truth claim of the Bible is not merely a set of rules or advice, or propositions, or guidelines. What the Bible sets before us is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for us. That's what the Bible presents to us. And what I found in my experience is that people who reject Christianity really don't reject Christianity. What most people reject when they reject Christianity is they are rejecting Christians who weren't living like Christians in the first place. Okay? And so I would just say that to you today. If you're on the fence about Jesus and about the Bible and about the church, I would tell you today to consider what the Bible points you to, which is Jesus. That the great truth claim is nothing but Christ. And the Bible invites you to Him. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come learn of me. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 12, that to as many as received Him. Received Him. Friends, in the end, it's not about receiving something I say or something our church teaches. It's about receiving Christ. It's about coming to Him and considering Him and knowing Him. He is the center. He is what you need to know. He is the one who offers Himself to you. And thankfully, I can tell you that this Jesus, He is not afraid of people with their questions. He is not afraid of people with their doubt. And he does not run away from skeptics who think hard and difficult thoughts. After his resurrection, Jesus had one of his own disciples say to him, unless I see with my eyes the wounds in his hands and in his side, and unless I touch him, I will not believe. What did Jesus do? He didn't say, well, he ought to have a little bit more faith. He should have paid attention more last Sunday at church, and he wouldn't be in this mess. If he'd have been paying his tithes, he probably would have got all this. What Jesus said to doubting Thomas, after he appeared to him, he said, come. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your uncertainty. Come to me with your questions. The central truth claim of Christianity is our Christ. That's the first thing you need to consider from this text today. The second thing you need to consider from this text today Is that when the Bible tells you to believe in Jesus. And I hope this is clear to you. The Bible does not tell you to believe in Jesus. Because it's easy. The Bible does not tell you. In other words to become a Christian. Because it works. The Bible tells you to become a Christian. Because it is true. There are moments following Jesus. That will not make your life easier. But will make it very difficult. Jesus says that. Deny yourself and come after me. Take up your cross. It's not that the gospel works to make life simple or to make us even always better. But we are compelled to believe the gospel because it is true. That's how the Bible always presents this message. Not as if, hey, this is a great option for you. This may be some help to you. The Bible says, no, this God became a man. This God-man was crucified in this world, in a specific place. He was buried in the dirt of this world. He rose again from this world. And here's a whole list of people who you can go ask about it. It is truth. And so this is Pilate's issue. What is truth? Pilate asks a question. What is truth? But in Matthew's account of Jesus' trial before Pilate, he asks another question. In Matthew chapter 27, verse number 33, he asks, this is really the whole question, what shall I do with Jesus? He's saying, I don't know what to do with him. There's no evidence that he's guilty. There's no clear proof that he's wrong. But I have all this pressure that's pressuring me to reject the truth, to do what I know is not right, because a lie is better for me than the truth. What shall I do with Jesus? Folks that's the question we all have to answer. What will you do with Jesus? But that question. Is really only the first question. That leads to the bigger question. The bigger question is what will Jesus do with you? What would Jesus do with you? Jesus. Legally and formally was on trial before Pilate. Who was really on trial? Who was really the judge? Pilate was on trial. Pilate refused to believe in what he knew to be true. Because it was inconvenient. And he missed the opportunity that he had to know and to walk with Jesus. There may be some of you that are here today that you're struggling with this question. Question. And I would just say that maybe the the problem is not about information. The problem is about inconvenience. The truth about Jesus is just inconvenient. And maybe you don't believe it to be true because you don't want it to be true. So what will you do with Jesus? And what will he do with you? Let's stand together today. I would like to have our heads bowed and our eyes closed if we can, please. I don't want anybody looking around. But I do want to pray for us this morning. And so with nobody looking around, I do want to ask a couple of questions of you. And I would just ask you to put your hand up if I can pray for you today. First of all, I know that most of you here consider yourself Christians and, and you believe in truth. You would say you believe that the Bible is true. I know that. I know that this message maybe wasn't for anybody that was actually here. But I also know this that today, even as God's people right now, we have a hard time with truth we think are inconvenient. And we look for ways to justify our behavior, to get out from underneath truth, just like people outside of the faith do. Some of you see that in your heart right now, that certain things in God's Word are inconvenient and you're fighting about it with truth right now. I want to pray for you. Can I do that? Will you put your hand up and say, Brother Jesse, right now that's me. I'm fighting what I know to be true. And I see your hands. And I will pray for you. How many of you would, would come today and you would say, you know, Pastor, it's it's not so much that I, I struggle with this question, but I do have questions. I don't know if it's doubt or, or unbelief or just uncertainty, but there are things about Jesus and the church and the Bible I have a hard time with and I have questions. And I want God to give me some answers. Would you put your hand up? And I, I see those hands. Send us hands. Hey, me too. Me too. How about this? How many of you here today would admit it's been a long time since you've shared the gospel with anybody because you're afraid they're going to come up with a question you can't answer? And you think you have to be the expert instead of the witness? And how many of you would, would pray that God would do a work in your life over the next few weeks to listen, to learn, and to grow so that you could be a more faithful witness for Jesus? Would you put your hand up? I see your hands today and if you need to respond after we pray while we sing this great old hymn it's one of my favorites you come to this altar you come talk to the one who said I am truth who said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free there's freedom in truth today bondage in lies Father God I pray to you now for all of those that are here this morning struggling. Maybe they know the truth but God they don't like it and they're having a hard time with surrendering to what they know to be true just like Pilate did.